very important conversation we're about to have. The title of this panel is Gen Art, and then like in parens, like and, in, or, or AI art. And it's a really, it's an open question because it feels like from a macro perspective that AI and AI, AI art is like a freight train that's just running towards us. And I don't know exactly how what they're doing relates to generative art or the kind of long form, more or less abstract generative art that we're practicing here in Mexico City. But I have a really strong conviction that next year, if we were sitting here, that the stuff that you're working on and maybe even yourselves as artists would be deeply enmeshed and integrated uh, into these conversations we're having in a, in, in, a, in a deep way. And so I'm really happy to have two amazing artists uh, and thinkers um, from the space, uh, Gan Brood and Sophia Crespo, to join us and talk a little bit each about your process. I think there's a kind of conventional wisdom, maybe not here, of most people, oh, I just open up Dali and I put some prompts and I'm a AI artist. And so I wanted to really demonstrate a little bit of like the workflow as an artist, kind of what goes in, like how the sausage is made. And so each to kind of go through your process and then step back a little bit and talk about, well, what is the interrelationship between this path and kind of what we're seeing with code-based, long-form generative art, the kind of stuff that we see on art blocks or FX hash, which to date hasn't really been able to support the kind of work that you're doing. So with that, thank you both for coming. You've traveled a long way. We really appreciate it. And I'll have you start, Buzz. Okay. Thank you, Seth. Both uh, Sophia and I uh, are working with AI uh, synthetic images um, for a couple of years now. It was really weird to see that suddenly this explosion of AI art was happening. Um, applications like DALI and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion just uh, popped out of the air like that, and everybody was able to make art. Um, and, uh, but I'm gonna start telling you a little bit about my um, history. Um, I have always uh, worked in uh, some uh, field of visual storytelling. Um, I started out when I was uh, around 17, 18 years uh, with um, special makeup effects for, for movies um, that became uh, model making for uh, physical model making for museums like dinosaurs and, and, and insects and, and just actually sculpting and airbrushing and uh, uh, but at the same time I was very uh, into the emerging um, computer arts and and, and digital um, uh, CG uh, so I started working uh, at a um, commercial uh, post-production company um, with uh, 3D animation, which at the time was um, not really taught in schools in, in, in my country um, because it was very, very early on. And after maybe 10, 12 years of, of 3D, I kind of got bored with the cleanliness and the, um, there was an element missing for me. So I started to look for a, a way to express myself more um, that was a little bit more human 
I, I thought the human factor was missing from 3D. It was too clinical. And after three years as an art director for uh, Sony Computer Entertainment, making screenshots in game and, and art directing um, assets of, of video games, um, I decided to turn my hobby at that point as a photographer into a job. And I did a couple of uh, workshops because at, at that time I felt it was too late for me to, to just go to school and be with really young people. And um, so I just invested in a couple of really uh, good workshops with uh, Steve McCurry. And I, I did a workshop in Mexico City with uh, Kadir uh, van Lohuizen uh, in 2008. And I kind of traveled the world and, and, and focused myself on um, documentary photography. This went on for, for about 13, 14 years, and I never touched a 3D application again. Anything that had to do with CG was kind of in my past. I, uh, I, was, I was really not interested. And suddenly um, a friend of mine said, have you, have you, have you seen this, this AI stuff that you can make? And I, um, he showed me Art Breeder. Uh, which was a kind of a graphical interface, um, making it very easy for somebody who didn't code to get access to these uh, algorithms and models like StyleGAN and BigGAN that were like three, four years ago. So the, there was a graphical interface and I started doing experimentation, but as soon as I, 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 I touched this software, I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't do anything else. So I, I have been fully on this for three and a half years now. And I, I was completely uh, into this. This was one of the first projects I did. This is Billy the Kid. This is the only known photograph. This was a decisive moment for me when I found out that a very damaged photograph interpreted by the, the algorithm, and it gave me a, a very credible output. And it was the moment where I thought, hey, this is, this is a very, very interesting, it's, it's not only fascinating but it's it can be very productive and um, so I started doing a lot of paintings or still thinking very much in, in the sense of photography and um, I did a lot of experimentation that were more like technical uh, tricks than that it, that it was art and I tried to photograph people that lived before the invention of the camera that was kind of my goal then during the the pandemic um, my uh, paid photography work was completely come to a stop because I was mo mostly photographing people. So there were no contract jobs for me as a photographer. And um, some of my images that I put on Instagram uh, went kind of viral. The Jesus in the middle was shown everywhere around the world, even, even in Mexico. So at one point, I, I, I really saw that, that my work was recognized, uh, but there was almost no way to make a living on this. And I did a couple of covers and, and things like this, but I, I really couldn't pay my rent with this. People thought my work was real, so Snopes and Reuters had to uh, debunk. And then I, I slowly started to approach uh, museums and galleries in the Netherlands and trying to make uh, interesting projects where I tried to find the, the, the actual, the real face of Van Gogh and I did a project where I created 25 uh, Andy Warhols that looked like Polaroids or photographs, but they were actually completely synthetic based on many, many photographs that I input into the, the algorithm. 
at one point I, I heard about NFTs and I thought, okay, maybe this is one plus one is two. And um, this is maybe a way that I can finally make some money of this because I'm, uh, I, I'm not able to pay my rent. So I started uh, on Hiccup Nunk in March 21. These are some old pieces because at that moment I was, oh, the, the output of the algorithms was so low in resolution. I had to find a way to make this uh, bigger and just putting nine on a one work was a way for me to, um, to battle this, uh, this deficiency of, of uh, very low resolution. There's a lot of after story after this, but we'll probably get to that later. Um, what I find so fascinating is that we humans have always, um, since the, the, the invention of the wheel, we have to, we have invented machines to help us first with our physical uh, bodies, uh, replacing human, human uh, physical uh, muscle power, uh, but also horsepower. Um, and now we're at the point where we make these machines and algorithms that um, assist us in, uh, assist our minds and assist our uh, communities and societies and, and everything is kind of growing together and that's what I really find fascinating um, with uh, synthetic generation of images through AI. I, I try to glue together everything that is in, in, in cultural history, uh, but also in, in my personal fantasies and, and imagination. And um, it's, it's really a way to explore the relation human machine and um, at the same time it's, it's very much about me because it's I can work with everything I ever loved visually because it's um, I my my inputs are sources and inputs are are movies and comics and and very classical pieces and um, yeah okay Well, thank you for having me here. I'm very happy that um, there is some room to talk about AI and, and I look forward to discussion. I love your talk best. So just to share with you a little bit about the things that I'm fascinated by. One of them is microscopy. And the reason for that is that micro the microscope is a technology. But weirdly enough, when we think of technology, we think, oh, well, that's kind of the opposite of nature, right? They're very separate. Nature is the given and technology is what we've done with that. And in a way, it's kind of like a recycling of elements. We didn't invent new atoms to build computers. We are using pre-existing material matter. But I'm not going to go too deep, too philosophical, um, even though I love uh, later to have philosophical conversations about this, especially Iskra knows. <laughs> this was a microscope that I got when I was 13 and it just really changed my way of seeing the world. It showed me that the world is full of tiny things and they are alive and I cannot see them with the naked eye. I need a special device to be able to see them. So this device, weirdly enough, is kind of bringing me closer to what I consider natural. Moving on to what we consider synthetic, artificial. This is what my workflow looks like a lot of the time. Not all the time, but a lot of it looks like that. Now this may 
look like nothing to you, but it's like a terminal printing the results, kind of like the process of the training of the model. So it's letting me know like how it's computing. And it looks like that when everything goes well, of course. <laughs> it doesn't look like that when it doesn't. And to kind of summarize what my process looks like in a very linear way, it starts with a data set. The data set can be open source images from the internet. It can be myself literally shooting the data set. This is proof <laughs> to everyone who thinks like nobody's making their data set. We shot with the, an aquatic uh, drone and I shot myself, but this isn't to say that not shooting your own data sets isn't valid actually. So just to clarify that. And then the data gets fed onto a neural network and the neural network is kind of like a combination of many different things because it's usually based on a white paper that somebody wrote at some university somewhere. This is like the, the common way that you encounter them. Not all AI is written like that, but very often it is. Somebody wrote the white paper, somebody else who's very, very good at programming wrote an implementation for that paper. And then, hello, I come and I'm like taking that code and I think, how can I hack this to make, to, to make weird things with it? I didn't just arrive to doing what I'm doing uh, randomly. I first found out about artificial life and that it had its kind of really big moment in the 80s and 90s. Unfortunately, now it's not that big anymore. And a lot of the artists that were working with A-Life, I feel like they deserve more recognition, actually, because it very often gets pushed onto kind of scientific, like a very small scientific subset of people who are very interested in that. But the art community doesn't fully regard them as artists all the time, even though that's changing, hopefully. And to make this a bit more fun, um, well, this is a fun fact about me. I had an experience with jellyfish when I was younger that kind of marked me and it made me want to generate jellyfish later on. So weirdly enough, this small experience um, really inspired a huge part of my work. I found myself trying to generate these shapes and this kind of translucency that they have. And I love their bodies. They don't have uh, vertebrae the way we do, you know, they can kind of bend. And some jellyfish actually have very tiny eyes. Anyways, <laughs> and this very slowly deviated. I was like, oh, jellyfish is not enough. I want to see sea anemones, I want coral. Um, and then it was not enough. And I wanted to see land animals. And for a time, I wanted to focus on creatures that people didn't like very much, like insects, snakes, or give people some phobia. And my mom was like, Sophia, what the hell are you doing? Uh, nobody's going to want to exhibit that. And okay, to clarify, I didn't invent hybrid creatures. People have been doing that since forever. Just in the Middle Ages, people illustrated hybrid creatures. It was a normal thing, but it happened sometimes by accident because somebody would travel somewhere in the world and they would see an animal that only exists there, but they cannot draw it. So when they're back, they, they tell the illustrator, look, I've seen this thing and the tail really looks like a fish. And the illustrator literally gives it the tail of a fish because that's what the illustrator has seen previously. That's the only example that they have. And it made me think a lot about data sets and AI and how you know, we have kind of a limited creativity to some extent, because if we've never seen it, how can we actually, you know, know it? 
The Codex Serafiniano is another piece that really, really inspired me. It was published in 81. And I saw this book that at first looks like you're able to read it, you're able to understand what is there, it looks like a natural history kind of archive. But then when you look closer, you cannot really understand anything there, you know. And the semantic that you're able to extract from here is just from these shapes that are kind of combined onto something else. So I thought this was an amazing project and I wanted to kind of take the tools that I had at the moment and make something with that, that made me think about this kind of recombination of elements. And I did that. And then at some point I felt like, okay, this isn't enough for me. I don't want to just send these artworks to a printer. And that's, that's the artwork that gets exhibited. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I wanted to actually be able to make the physical object myself. I started doing that. I learned about this, um, this technique, the, the cyanotype, which is quite popular, in fact, with artists, and it has been developed for centuries now. And it allowed me to kind of print negatives of the generated pieces and then use those to expose with a photographic process. So that felt like I had more of my, my hand in the, in the matter. And then later on, I felt like 2D wasn't enough, and I wanted to translate these creatures to a three-dimensional space. Of course, our first generation, our first trial with these creatures really didn't look like this. They looked like blobs, and they looked like formless. But it took us a lot of time of trial and error to get them to a point where they were more coherent insects. We wanted insects for this project. Jumping on like quickly to another project, uh, this is one of my more kind of ecological minded projects where I wanted to um, take AI, but use it to speak about the lack of data that there is on the internet in general about certain species and how that lack of data uh, doesn't allow us to really connect with those species because if we cannot read about them or we cannot see what they look like, we can't really acknowledge them. I was very lucky to get to exhibit it in this way because I felt like that's what I wanted with the project. It's a project I've never released it for sale. For me, this is just something that I wanted to do because I felt like I had to to, to speak, to use AI about bias. But very often uh, AI engineers look at the back end of this project and they say, what the hell are you even doing with this? Like, this is not you know you're misusing the AI, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm overfitting the model, um, but I'm doing that intentionally. Just to kind of mention a little bit what was happening in my career, I was part of this show in 2019 while all the previous things were happening um, at Kivas Gallery, who's here. And it was co-curated by Georg Back and Jason Bailey. And this was, for me, the first time that my work got put in a kind of historical context. It was also the first time that my work was exhibited at a gallery. And for me, it was like, okay, sure. I really didn't know <laughs> what was going on. But then Kate said, would you be willing to mint your first NFT? And this was my response. Because I was like, what the hell does that mean? Actually, it wasn't even NFT. NFT wasn't really the word being used, I think, at the moment. Crypto art, yeah. And I was like, what does that mean? What, you know? And then I said, 
okay, let's do it. It took me some time, but in January 2020, we did it. And it was so strange because suddenly one of the curators of the show is collecting my work. And I thought, but I've never experienced that before. I didn't know curators collected from the same. But so I thought, oh, well, nice. And then I discovered super rare. And I go and I try to mean the work. And suddenly I encounter this word, scarcity. What the hell does this mean? I, I understood that more in an economical sense that gets mentioned. But what does it mean in relation to my work? Why do I need to care about scarcity? And in a way, I think it's a little bit important to mention this because it changes the way that we artists end up relating to the work because we have to end up pushing back and think like, how much do I want to let this influence me? Just like a few more things that happened in my timeline. This was a very uh, important commission as well through Cape that was the first time I sold a bundle of two works. And at the time, honestly, I couldn't pay my bills. And I told Kate, like, please, um, if there's any commission, something like, help me out. And this was like during the pandemic, kind of in Germany, um, was very throughout the world. But yeah, I had never done a two meter cyanotype before. And we signed the commission and everything. I was like, okay, how the hell do I do this now? And then like jumping back in time, there was another semi-challenging moment for me because I presented this work last year at Untitled Miami. It was my first solo booth, solo anything. But I had never really been to an art fair in this way before, like to where, you know, a lot of the noise is happening. And I found myself having to constantly explain people that the screens weren't for sale, that they couldn't like take the screens. And then having curators ask me like, so are you sold out yet? And I was like, what is that the metric that like, why is that the only thing that matters? So it made me think a lot about how I define success. And I only sold one piece just for the record. And then we showed like, I think 12 works. Well, jumping back to this year, there was this moment in my first kind of big auction house that brought a lot of stress, to be honest, because I never had a long auction before. And you're really there for a week, not knowing what's going to happen and fighting, like checking on your phone, you know, refreshing. Like, okay, I'm not going to micromanage this. I'm going to really try to focus on other stuff. And then we said, okay, fuck the whole thing about scarcity that I had learned before. I wanted to release a larger series and we released this series with my studio partner Felican 513 works and it's kind of a metamorphosis concept of the jellyfish coming together with a butterfly and in a way it kind of represents us. And then the last event that I wanted to mention was um, really important for me because it was my first solo show ever and it was this year in LA. For me at this moment, I was really like thinking, okay, maybe so far I thought of NFTs kind of as an alternate, kind of as a separate thing to what I'm doing with, with my own exploration. But then I felt like, okay, this is a genuine way of me, like for me to share with people what I want to explore. So it was extremely um, meaningful and it kind of changed my my approach in a way. So just want to end with a very small reflection. One of the things is how we define success as artists and as collectors. 
and how we define our own personal success in our work um, versus how the market defines success and how we create that kind of separation between you know, what the market thinks is successful, what we think is successful. I think that's a deeply personal journey. And the other thing is, I see this kind of as a trust exercise. Releasing your work as an artist is already an, a trust exercise, but commercializing one's, one's own work and throwing it out in the market adds an extra layer of vulnerability where you can actually be told, oh, your work sells for nothing. Oh, you know, like you undersold this and all these things can really get to you. So it's kind of like you have to lean in into it and not think too much constantly. Okay, that's everything, thank you. That was awesome. Um, thank you both. Exactly what I was hoping for. Like really, really amazing stories for both of you um, that is obviously related to everything we're doing here, but at the same time, strangely like orthogonal. And um, think of some questions because I want to open up in a little bit, but I guess, I think for me, like the, the big question is um, you have the outputs, in most cases it's a hundred, or in the case of the Nexus it's a thousand, or with one RG it's a thousand. We know there's an algorithm, some kind of smart contract that Zach Lieberman, he, he wrote the script for a hundred sunsets and there's only going to be a hundred of them ever. And part of um, collecting his work is collecting one instance of that code that he wrote or that um, Iskra or Marcello wrote. And I think one of the challenges that I think collectors have with AI art is what is the art? Is it just the output? Because um, there really isn't that same kind of smart contract, although there might be in certain cases in terms of how you release it. Um, but a lot of what I hear is I trained my own model. So can you talk about like, is the model that you've trained the artwork? What do you think? Sophia trains her models, and I, as a photographer, I have been working for, for 15 years with, with a, a box made by uh, Canon. I didn't exactly know what was inside. Um, I, didn't, I didn't construct it. I just went to a shop and bought it. That made me, um, that, that taught me how to work in a, in a, in a, in a way with, like, like, not every painter uh, is, is, is mixing his own pigments, you know? Um, and there were, were, of course, times when I thought, okay, to be really original or to be really um, express myself with this tool is to, um, to, uh, to train my own model, to, to get deeper in the algorithm, maybe learn some coding. Um, but already this, stuff was moving in such a um, frantic, uh, explosive way that I, I could never ever, uh, I, I, I didn't see myself jump in and, and not lose six, seven, eight months in, in, in well, everything was uh, racing past me. So um, I never, I just work with um, 
ready available tools and I, I just combine them creatively in a way um, so they don't look like your average uh, mid-journey output or um, so for me that's is that an answer that's or? a good answer and so last week you had your first IRL show right in Switzerland yeah it was a couple of weeks ago um, with uh, Kate here and then with uh, Georg and then Nick what was that experience like for you yeah, well, of course that was amazing because um, I'm 54 years old and I have been probably all my life wanted to express myself through art, but I was always blocked and frustrated because the way I am. And only with photography I learned to get in touch with a very intuitive side of myself and that later transformed into this stuff, what I see as as post photography in both senses that this comes after photography a lot of models are trained on photography and and for me this is what i do after my photography and my whole the way i i i view things and and what i've learned in photography of composition and, and contrast and colors and um is that's all represented in what i'm doing now so i i really see this as as post photography as an artist, I feel like like a uh, like a kid who just started. At the same time, I have all these experiences, um, both in in life and in in my careers, um, that suddenly bec um, kind of come out in such a short time. Because I, um, well, I was as I was saying, I, I'm doing this for a little over three years. In such a short time reach what I have have reached and and develop myself in such a incredible um, way uh, it, it, it's a weird time for me because everybody knows that the NFT space is 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 um, at least 10 20 times as fast as normal time and the whole pandemic the, that fucked up my 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 sense of time too and and now I'm just doing all these things in, in a couple of years and, and then as like a climax, just having my work with a gallerist that I um, admire a lot because if you just look on her website, if you just see the, the artist that she represents, um, Kate is absolutely a visionary on that. So that I'm, I'm incredibly proud and, and to see my work um, Printed and on screens in in Zurich was was just amazing. You're also a, a curator. You've curated a AI show, and you're a prolific Tez collector. Yeah. How has collecting on Tez on FX Hash impacted the work you're doing creatively? I'm collecting for two reasons. One is that I just I made, I made some mistakes. Like anyone who who enters the the NFT world. Um, and I, I really wanted to know what I should do right the next time, what I should um, avoid. And so by collect, by being a collector myself, I, um, I, I knew what my, my collectors would feel and, and, and uh, experience. So that, that was one reason, but the other one was I, I got on this, this market with a, an idea Maybe this is a way I can make some money and, and, and sell my work, but I'm not going to buy JPEGs for, for money. I'm not crazy. 
and it, it took me like two or three days. Um, and I, I, I didn't have anything at the time, but I spent all my savings and everything. I just kept on buying it. And then I said, okay, no, I'm... What, what, were, you, what were your first purchases? And where? My first purchases, I don't know, because I, I bought 6,000, so... <laughs> <laughs> but um, so some work that uh, stuck out, yeah, I, I, I can't mention his name because it's, it's, um, it's a pseudonym, so, uh, but uh, he's here. Um, <laughs> I am... Um, anyway, so I, then, then I, I, I told myself, I, t I told myself, um, so I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm just spending 50% of what I earn to, and, and that didn't work because I was spending 150% of what I made. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that's why I collected and how I've been. It all becomes a degenerate self-help session in the end. I was just going to say that Bass actually reached out and told me, he said, yeah, I want to collect one of your works. Do you want to trade? And I was like, oh, but I don't really like know much about this. So how does it work? I'm super confused. Like he could known doesn't work for me. And then he just literally guided me through the whole thing so that we could do the trade. And I was really happy. And that's when I, I kind of got a little bit more motivated after that to get like, it's like he onboarded me in a way. So. What about you as a collector? Do you collect? No, I'm very greedy and that's <laughs> No, I collect. I was very happy. So then when we traded, um, I was like, oh, this is actually really nice. And then I was in a feral file show and I got a piece you automatically get as a participating artist, a piece of each artist. And I was like, damn, that's really nice. I, I get it now. And, um, and then afterward, like, I don't know how it was that I stumbled onto FX Cash really late. I did everything pretty late in a way, but, um, I was like, oh my God, okay, now I get it. And I was just like, suddenly, you know, I could afford all this art. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I didn't dare to call myself a collector. I think I have in total maybe like 40 works. Um, and it doesn't sound like a lot, I mean, <laughs> um, so, but yeah. I hope I hope to continue doing that slowly. Yeah. Um, one last question. And as you've walked through Prim, you know, you've seen what 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 ties all of the bright moments experience together is the fact that these are on-chain generative works that are being minted for the first time. And as much as the artist is tuning the code, um, tuning the model, tuning the algorithm, ultimately on some level, we're seeing, you know, we as the artist, we as the collector are seeing the work for the first time randomly, right? As far as I know, everything you've done to date has been curated. And whether it's a series or a one of one, you've chosen exactly the final output and you've lived with it before the collector has. Do you think in the near future, medium future, you're gonna to move to something that's more like what we're experiencing here, or do you wanna to continue to control the final outputs? Well, when we're working, we don't really know what we're gonna get exactly. There is an element of randomness in the whole generation. It's just that 
so far we haven't had any blockchain where we could upload a full model that generates like high resolution. It's only now that we're starting to have like our blocks flex engine, I think, our FX hash. Like we are now starting to have, uh, I would have done an R blocks drop if that had been possible before. Um, and what we have called it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I don't know if you want to say something about that. I usually have thousands of outputs that I curate. Sometimes I, I come close to a method that gives me outputs where 80% is great, but it's never as profound as that single one that I pick out of a thousand. Of course, I'm thinking about this because it's, um, I, I find it extremely interesting and fascinating um, what happens here at the minting and I've been collecting this stuff and I've been talking to a lot of, made a lot of friends and made a lot of, talking to these people and, and, and their experience. And I, I think it's something that is uh, very much of, of, of this time, which, which I find that one of the reasons that I didn't really, um, didn't got stuck in photography or in, 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 in drawing or painting is that the idea that that thousands of people before me um, did this and and reached uh, such a height that they did, but even even a thousand years ago, where people painted in, I could never ever ever match this. I mean, that feeling just um, makes you impotent as 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 an artist. I mean, it, it, the good thing about this is that this is so new that there is territory to, to explore. I feel like like there's a whole continent waiting there for me in my little boat to uh, to discover, uh, which gives me an enormous energy to go on. And so coming back to the to the generative pieces, um, of course, that 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 is very interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking about this. But so far, my whole workflow is based on this single profound iteration of a thousand outputs and um, it's not such an easy jump. Questions. So Bia, you mentioned bias and I know we heard a lot about like racial bias and these type of things in AI. Um, one of the, uh, I guess really in my mind, one of the really good things that's been happening over the last few years with like Dolly and stuff is the introduction of more creative. Um, kind of creative data to add to this like big data set. Um, it also makes me think that like living by your own values is even more important now because you now add every way we're being tracked in our habits that goes into the big data set, which then can then influence positively out into the future. Um, but there's a lot of creators and builders in the room here. Uh, is there anything that we can do to help um, maybe influence and add to the creative data that's being added to big data um, and kind of uh, what we can do to maybe dig our values in deeper to the big data that's being created to help more positively influence and lessen the bias that comes out the other side. Yeah. Okay, so there are more and more artists complaining about the art being part of the data set, right? And what I like is that um, there are artists who have actually built tools 
to opt out of a data set. And I think that's really important as well, like to push back. AI, unfortunately, has this whole kind of social baggage um, that yeah, since it's being developed for like corporations are putting so much money into it, um, it has all these layers of like what we understand to be AI. Um, and in a way, there is kind of this um, idea of the black box, you know, a lot of fear around AI. So I totally understand why when you compare it to long form generative art where you, you know, can tell like this came from this library here, you know, this is a function and I can, you know, check ultimately where this is coming from in, in a simpler way. Um, I understand why there are all these ideas about AI. Um, and, and because it's so complex socially, um, there is no like one size fits all answer. Um, unfortunately, like with self-driving cars, you know, um, how do you choose between like, you know, two people that you potentially run into, uh, run over, you know, like there are all these like hard problems that AI comes with and in the day to day, we don't have to deal with that. Fortunately, um, something that I always, uh, say is that all my work is biased, you know? Um, there is no such thing as like an unbiased artwork, but I think that's what art is about anyway. Um, so I like using the bias as, as a statement about it. Um, I don't know if you, um, yeah, well, I'm always seeing the, the, the AI I use as, as a pure tool and every, um, every tech, um, Every technique, every has has its own pitfalls and its own dangers, but it's um, it's it's the way you use it. So uh, I, the I, I made a Jesus, um, and I based it on probably seventeen or eighteen um, very white Western Jesuses that were very very known icons to every everybody knows these faces because you have seen him uh, hundreds of times everywhere. And I, I combined these with some input, um, s some very credible input of how people looked in that er area in that time. And so I, I rendered this into um, an output that was immediately recognized as the Jesus that everybody has um, in the on their retinas, and at at the same time, no, nobody. Uh, I I thought it would, it would be very controversial, but it's um, I I didn't have almost have had none no negative uh, feedback on that. Um, but just as an example, it's it's who controls the um, who 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 drives the car. How um, I mean, a car is a, is a nice uh, metaphor for something that can be very, very can kill people, can be very dangerous. But at the same time, you can uh, get from A to B, and you can drive very carefully, and you can. Um, so maybe that's an answer to uh, a little bit. Josh, I'm just curious, especially with how much data is needed uh, for data sets to exist, and how it's like improbable for it to be completely on-chain, how you view that when minting work as NFTs and how you 
how you see that discussion framed. Uh, yeah. If I can start, um, for me as an artist, I work with what I've got. And now the, da the data sets of most of the algorithms I work with are, are very large. And it, it, it doesn't necessarily make it easier for me. I like to be um, restricted and, and confined a little bit as an artist. I, um, I, I, I remember that I wanted to, to draw, learn how to draw as a 12-year-old and was just looking at this blank piece of paper and anything. I, I would just, that didn't work for me. So I, I, and I really like to work as well with very small, um, with algorithms that are trained with very small data sets because that kind of stimulates your creativity. Um, <laughs> just in the middle of a sentence. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, so. um, well. So an engine, Flex Engine currently supports 50 megs, I think. And FX Hash supports 50 megs. And it's like, right. that's the order of magnitude we're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, I think Stable Diffusion has like uh, seven or eight gigs or something. That's the model, so yeah. Well, I do think that it would be a possibility, you know, like I thought, or maybe it, it makes perfect sense that it would eventually be a possibility for us to do that. But the Web3 space just moves so fast that it's, I think it's very hard to catch up and be like, okay, do you have ready a series for tomorrow? And like, well, you know, maybe this takes me a really long time to develop, you know, especially if there's the whole aspect of the randomness that I don't know what people are going to see. I want to really make sure that it's something that I feel okay with. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, just a few years ago when I trained the model, it took me one month to train it. Okay. Maybe because my computational resources were terrible, but it literally took one month of training and I would, all I could do was just go and check that it's still training. And, and, and that's it, you know? So I think that like, I personally am fully open to the idea. Um, I don't know, like maybe, <laughs> but I think like a lot of AI artists are open to the idea. It just kind of takes more from light because the data is so heavy and there, so you have to think about where is it going to be rendered as well? Um, what size you want to render, of course, like if you want to do an animation, you have to think frame by frame. Um, there are a lot of things to consider. So I think that the way I think about it is I, I try to take kind of, um, a slow approach. I try not to get too like caught up in like, I have to release, release, release. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> I love the the idea of on-chain art, by the way, you know, and I think it's absolutely amazing for um, for the artists who like use generative art as the medium. I, I include myself, but it's kind of like in a different way. Question. Um, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the, in the concept that you guys talked about, uh, you know, being uh, an AI artist uh, also makes you a curator because you need to curate, you know, the outputs. Uh, what, what would you like to, to see in the future as, as curators and artists and, and how, how can your audience kind of, you know, start uh, differentiating between, you know, 
good artists, good, good creations, and, uh, and creations, and, and, and the rest, you know, because we're obviously going to see a flood of, of content. Yeah, I think that um, in art in general, there's so much art being produced that we don't see, like every single day, you know, in such a diversity of mediums. But I think the internet really brings up this issue of signal to noise, like how do I um, separate what is important for me to like what is relevant for me at a specific time versus what is important for other for somebody else you know and i think that's a problem in general kind of with the internet as well <laughs> i think like the platforms are a huge have a huge say in that you know um like uh of course like google sorts what you see super rare sorts what you see yeah it's also curated content um but there are like curated artists who minted there and you know nobody really sees their work even if it's a curated platform and there are all these questions like when it's an open platform and when the idea is to decentralize um how do you actually allow everyone equal opportunity versus how do you actually make it more personalized um I don't have a question and an answer, sorry, because it's such a difficult question, uh, but yeah. Uh, what I have found very, um, very nice uh, is, is the, um, the diversity of, of inputs that I get. Um, curation comes from professional curators, from friends from colleagues from collectors from journalists from entrepreneurs from so there is so much feedback coming to me from from lots of different sides fermenting maybe that's a marinate marinating fermenting marinating yeah um and 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 then in the end i have been much more in working much more intuitively than I than in in the first part of my life and and this is it and, and I've, I find that I have always been looking for a way to tap into this intuition and and was never able to do to do that in in, a, in the right way and and all the all the sources that I just mentioned as as in influencing and curating my work um, they're they're perfect um diverse uh offering of 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 uh for my intuition to in the end make the right decisions one last ai i mean we are here for the bright moments experiencing minting generative art when it comes to ai based art how would you as artists would like your art to be exhibited experienced collected or like from the perspective of collecting, you also collect, you also now also collect, you know, like you see how the setup here in Bright Moments is. How would you imagine your work is to be experienced by the audience? And, and I'll preface that by saying you, you're both invited to exhibit in Tokyo in the beginning of May. So. Maybe we can start talking now about how you want your rooms to be designed. There we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's your turn. Um, I, I grew up near the, the, the 
Stedelijk Muse Museum in, in Amsterdam. Uh, that was just around the corner. My, my dad took me there from when I was three or four years old. And I remember um, the Beanery by Kinholtz. I don't know if any of you know it, uh, being still probably my favorite work of art ever. Just a short description, um, Kinholtz made this, uh, I think it was a, a New, York, New York bar that he built and it's uh, 30, 30 people just sitting in a bar talking and, and they're life-size life uh, dummies with just people. They look like real people, but they have clocks as faces. And you walk into this uh, bar and it's, he built the whole bar. And the whole artwork is, is very immersive and, it's, and it scared the hell out of me when I was three years old, of course. But it, I grew to love it and I visited many, many, many times. And so I'm, 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 I really love uh, an immersive experience in, in art. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to we will we'll brainstorm about what the best way to be. At the same time, I have grown into the idea that um, a, a piece of art doesn't have to be um, handmade or physical or um, and I also ha have, there is one side of me that kind of considers the, uh, the need to have something physical as, well, maybe a little bit of a fetishism. Um, it's, I think the, 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 the core essence of, of any art piece is, is uh, what it does with you, what it does with your mind, with your heart, with your soul, and everything that, that that every physical aspect of, of an art piece is um, in 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 that sense um, secondary to to the to the primary um, uh, meaning. Um, yeah. Well, um, speaking for myself, I think like I relate to what you said. A lot regarding physical. Maybe some years ago, if you asked me, I was like, that's too old school. I want to do everything digital, everything like AR or whatever, you know? Like, and now I find myself going more like, oh, I like the physicality. I like kind of telling the story with the space. Um, and there was recently this show where both Iskra and Casey were in it too. And each of them had an object in front of their artwork. Um, Iskra had a napkin that where she had drafted the pseudocode for her um, generative piece. And Casey had a compass. Um, and it was amazing because it was like, even like an old compass. Um, and I love that. Um, I had just books in front of my piece, but I was very happy to get to show um, a physical cyanotype that I made and the digital piece together. That was really meaningful to me because I had never been able to actually exhibit them together like that. And I think that's something that I, that I really like, that kind of form of presentation where there's a personal object, there's something that the artist like intentionally chose uh, apart from the physical, uh, from the digital piece. And Another um, kind of exhibition that I really, really enjoyed was one in China that I didn't get to see it in person, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. But we, we kind of distributed the space as like water 
and um, land. And you could kind of move between them and you, you could explore like different generations of the, pro of the same project. And because we work kind of iteratively, there's like 1.2, there's 1.3, there's, you know, like all the way to 3 point something. And then you could see like how long it actually took us to develop the same project. And I really liked that because it was like a very honest way of presenting, you know, I didn't just arrive to the creature that you saw, like it took a lot of iterations to actually get there. Um, so yeah, that's sad. Nice. I think we need a lot of jellyfish. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be super happy with that, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you both.